Hello, and welcome to River Writers, a monthly conversation about the craft of writing. I'm your host, Dale Olson, with the Writers Guild of Astoria. Our guest today is award-winning author Alan Rose. Alan is the author of three published novels. His most recent novel, As If Death Summoned, won the 2021 Forward Indies Book of the Year Award for the LGBT category. Additionally, Alan reviews books for the Columbia River Reader, hosts the program Book Chat on KLTV, and coordinates WordFest, a monthly gathering of writers and readers in Southwest Washington. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be here in Astoria. Oh, well, you are uh, very, uh, very welcome to be here and blessed to have uh, some, some very nice uh, Astoria uh, weather. It's beautiful, yes. Yeah, you you timed it perfectly. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I, I read As If Death Summoned when it first came out mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic. Oh, yes. And, uh, I mean, I bought it initially mm-hmm. um, thinking, you know, I as a friend, I wanted to support you know your work and thank you but i but i i have to be honest i i resisted picking you know actually diving in and reading it yes uh for a few months it just sat on my bedside table staring at me every night and i and i think i think the resistance was because of the subject matter the aids epidemic yeah and i uh i just i uh, you know that that was such a, a a sad and um troubled time yes and uh, so I, I, I was afraid it was going to be a downer. Yes. And when I finally, <laughs> when I finally uh, dove into it, I, I was surprised to find it was not a downer. Yes. It, it was actually very life affirming. Very life affirming, I think. Yes. And yeah. uh, and it it's very deserving of the award it, it won. Thank you, thank uh, you. I think that when I was writing it, I was very much aware that people would think AIDS downer. Who wants to read this? And so I intentionally um, put into it a lot of humor that was uh, typical of that time. It's sort of the humor that that saved many of us and um, wanted to have uplifting moments where people felt renewed rather than defeated by by what was happening. Well, I think the humor... Uh, is it's throughout the the story it 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 pops up at unexpected times mm-hmm. and it's very um it's very spontaneous and feels very natural and it's you know it 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 gives the reader that relief they need yes. from from the heartbreaking aspect yes. of the story yes well the humor uh i i refer to it as death defying humor because um, the humor was there throughout the epidemic, and it, like I said, it, it's one of the aspects of the epidemic that saved us. Uh, it was sometimes it was a gallows humor, uh, very bleak, um, um, but it, it was something that, as long as we were able to laugh together, even when uh, one of the people might be dying, um, you, it continue. We could continue then, continue on. Yeah. Now you worked in the 1990s in Portland for the Cascade AIDS Project. Is yes, that right? That's right. I uh, was first got involved in the AIDS epidemic when it struck Australia. I was living in Melbourne, and um, about 1984, and so I volunteered because there was no organized efforts, as there were no organized efforts here uh, in the states, and um, so 
with my volunteer work from 1984 when I returned to the States in early 1993, I went to Cascade AIDS Project and offered my services to volunteer, but they hired me as the mental health specialist and then later as the um, program manager for the prevention programs. Hmm. I'm going to stop. Okay. So when did you uh, first start thinking about writing your book, As If Death Summoned? I think I always wanted to write it back in Australia, um, then in Portland. Uh, there were just so many uh, tremendous stories there, uh, powerful stories, poignant stories mm -hmm. that I felt needed to be told. And um, so I knew I wanted to write it, but it was such a struggle to know how to tell the story. So uh, I didn't write during my years in Australia. I didn't write uh, when I first got to Portland, at least not on this book. Um, and through the years, I just kept on making notes about different stories um, and putting them in a file. And then every time I tried to begin to write, I just blocked. I just stopped. It was just too overwhelming of a story to, uh, to try to tell. Mm -hmm. And then in 2015, I retired from social services to write full-time and uh, dug out my file of all these notes. And for whatever reason, I don't understand the magic involved, but the story just sort of gushed forth. And I suddenly knew how I wanted to tell the story and how I could tell the story. Yeah, so it needed a little time to percolate. It needed 20 years to percolate. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, during that time, were you keeping a journal, or uh, would you just um, keep a notebook that you jotted down, uh, you know, experiences or mm -hmm. circumstances? As I would recall a person or an incident, an event, um Oftentimes, I would sort of scribble notes to myself, mm -hmm. and I would put those notes into that file. And so it was really a bulging file yeah. when I um, finally decided I could tackle the story. And I remember I, I had these loose pieces of paper all over my living room floor, just, you know, huge. I carpeted <laughs> the floor, basically, in all these notes, and then trying to figure out how I would begin to put them together into a coherent story. Yeah. How did you, how did you decide to um, frame... Um, a part of the story around the um, the the setting, the Bogong High Plains in Australia. How did that enter into your uh, storytelling decision? Right. Um, as you know, the whole story takes place over one one night in a hospital waiting room, mm -hmm. where the narrator is. Um, he's He's not slept in 30 hours, and he's waiting to see if a friend is going to survive. And uh, as he's there alone in the in the waiting room, um, that time is sort of filled with memories and um, uh, thoughts, uh, reflections on the epidemic. And that's how I decided that I could bring in memories from Australia and then current memories then of Portland and sort of fold them all together. So there's different tracks, actually. Mm -hmm. There's an Australian track. There's a waiting room track, what's happening to him in the waiting room. Yeah. And then there's the Portland uh, events track. Yeah. Uh, was now now uh, the the Bogong uh, High Plains, High Plains mm -hmm. it brings in some um, what I would uh, 
categorize as magical realism mm. into your story. Was that was it freeing for you to write that, or or was it challenging to write magical realism? Well, uh, I found it really fit uh, with what I wanted to do. The Bogong High Plains is a six thousand feet plateau in northern Victoria in uh, Australia, and um, it was a sacred. Uh, land uh, f to the Aboriginal peoples uh, there. And there's a story, a true story, about how three skiers were attempting to cross it in wintertime, and they got caught in a week-long blizzard, um, and one of the three per perished. And in my story, um, his spirit continues to wander these sacred lands, um, and the narrator begins to identify with Cleve Cole was the, the person who was lost because um, the narrator is lost in a blizzard, uh, which is the AIDS epidemic. And so I saw parallels there that I wanted to fold them together. And then the Bogong High Plains also provided the setting so I could bring in the Australia stories uh, as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Now, when you were writing the um, the Portland side of the story, uh, you know, it's set in a specific time period with... Um, there is, you know, a backdrop that's, you know, a real backdrop uh, of events and places and um, people that were, you know, public officials. Did you have any trouble obscuring uh, those identities so no. that you, everyone's protected? No, no. Um, the only real public official was uh, President Reagan, who gets sort of a comeuppance. Um, he had a national health crisis on his hands, and he and his administration uh, really ignored it. Um, and I had no problems uh, taking them uh, uh, over the carpet for that. Yeah. Um, will you read a section for us sure. uh, from As If Death Summoned? Okay. I, I picked it up again uh, before our interview and just kind of was uh, re reading some favorite sections of mine and uh, oh. laughing again. I, I have to say I love the section with the conversation with death in, uh -huh. in the hospital waiting room. Yes. It was very deftly, yes. deftly done, not <laughs> deathly done. <laughs> um, one program that we had at Cascade's Project, which is very uh, innovative, very revolutionary, um, gay men at that time were not coming in to be tested to mm -hmm. see if they were HIV positive. They weren't going to the Multnomah County Clinic because uh, it was considered government. They weren't going to their private doctors frequently. Um, many of them weren't out. And so um, what we proposed to Multnomah County was that we would develop our own testing program at CAP so men could come in and test there. Um, Multnomah County would still oversee it and supervise it, mm -hmm. but it would be the CAP program rather than the government program. And so I put together a team of 12 uh, volunteers, and one of them was, um, uh, the oldest one, was a father of a gay man. Uh, the father was a retired um, military colonel and had a lot of issues uh, around being around gay people initially, but through the uh, 12-week program, he really began to change, and um, and I wanted to read a, s a scene where that scene happens, uh, where that happens. Yeah. Um, John is 
increasingly becoming more comfortable being around gay people. Mm -hmm. He always refers to his son as my gay son in L.A. <laughs> and um, the youngest member of the team, Tyler, is a 19-year-old kid. And uh, Tyler is just coming out. And in the midst of these, this training, he falls in love for the first time. And this is a big event. Uh, the other gay members of the team are all clucking around him like a bunch <laughs> of mother hands. And this is the uh, scene I wanted to share. Okay. It was a sort of a mini revelation, M-I-N-I, -I, mini revelation um, for John. And I think the epidemic for me, as I understand, see it, was... Um, it was filled with many revelations mm -hmm. for people. Okay. The night of Tyler's announcement ended with the team members taking him out to celebrate with milkshakes. During Tyler's sharing, I had noticed John going from being happy for him to becoming distracted to finally wearing a pained expression on his face, maybe sadness. As the group was leaving, I checked in with him. Are you all right? What? Oh, yes, fine. Good session tonight. You look um, thoughtful. I guess it was Tyler's sharing about falling in love. I realized my gay son never had that kind of support from his family. Oh, he should have, like his older brothers did. We heard about their first dates in high school, met their girlfriends, went through their breakups, got to know their fiancés. The girls became part of our family even before the weddings. We were always there for my sons as a family. That flash of anguish crossed his face again. My gay son never had that. He had to move away from us before we could explore, before he could explore that part of his life. Just wondering, does your gay son have a name? Jono, or Johnny. He's John Jr.? No, I'm John. He was named Jonathan after Maggie's brother who died in Vietnam. His face once again took on that pained expression I'd seen earlier. I don't even know if he has a partner. He's never said. I never asked. Maybe I didn't want to know. He took a deep breath. I'm glad Tyler has this group to support him. You're part of the group, too. He looked at me. Yes, I am. Tyler wants me to meet his father. Yes, he told me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do or say. I don't think you need to do or say anything other than just be yourself, the father of a gay son who loves and accepts his son for who he is. He nodded. I can do that. He was silent a moment. I hope Jono had a group like this when he needed it. He should have had that support from his family. Well, you know, it's never too late for parents to offer emotional support. You're right. It's not. Maggie and I need to talk when I get home tonight. Oh, thank you, Alan. That was uh, a reading from Alan Rose's book, As If Death Summoned. And there are so many really touching moments in that book. And I think seeing that uh, character, the colonel, the father, uh, grow and evolve um, and to kind of... Uh, arrive at, you know, accepting his son um, as he is and through those relationships that he um, develops there uh, at the Cascade AIDS Project is, is really, it's a wonderful storyline. And uh, anyway, thank you so much for 
for reading that to us. Sure. Um, well, if, if you're just joining us, I'm Dale Olson with River Writers, and we're talking with Southwest Washington author Alan Rose, and that was an excerpt, excerpt from his award-winning book, As If Death Summoned. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process. And um, t- to begin with, who was, who was the first person who believed in you as a writer and and what did you start writing initially when you you know started to kind of explore that that side of yourself? I think the first person who believed in me as a writer was me. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> I uh, um, I knew I wanted to write um, even when I was in high school, mm-hmm. um, and but it wasn't until after college in seminary that I began to start writing little pieces, little uh, short stories. Um, then when I went to Japan, I lived in Japan for three years. That's where I started uh, just writing down stories in terms of this, uh, in terms of developing fiction. Uh, and so I was writing um, a collection of short stories that eventually became a novel called Tales of Tokyo. And I was also writing about an experience I had in, in Seattle. I used to live there before Tokyo. And uh, that became my first novel, uh, my paranormal mo- novel called The Legacy of Emily Hargraves. So from then on, um, from Japan years on in the 80s, uh, I started writing seriously as a considering myself a writer. Was it difficult for you to go through that process initially of um, finding an agent for your for your book and and a, and a publisher and uh, get getting that first first book launched um no no the um the first two books uh were self-published oh okay yeah uh the legacy of emily hargraves and tales of tokyo i did on my own okay and um and but for this book with the aids uh book i really wanted it to be done by a mainline uh publisher mm-hmm. and so i uh, approached agents, but I also approached independent uh, presses, and it was an independent press. Uh, she received my um, manuscript uh, set on a Friday, and she read it in one day on a on a Sunday, and immediately caught in touch with me and said, "Is we want to publish this?" So that was huh. the true validation, I think, for my writing. Did you just have to pinch yourself for like a week? <laughs> <laughs> It, like I said, it was validation. Oh, yeah. great. Somebody else sees in it what I wanted to be seen yeah. in it. And then how, how long was that um, journey to actually having it? Uh, it took in- about a year. Okay. Um, I was, uh, my, my manuscript was way too large, which is one of the concerns I had. It was 130,000, 132,000 words. Oh. And um, the publisher said, we really need to get it down to 110. So I knew there'd be some big cutting there. They gave me a wonderful editor to work with, Faye Jacobs. Uh, I, I built a shrine to her. <laughs> and um, she was just really delightful to work with. She, The first time she um, emailed me, she emailed in caps, I love this book. Oh. And so I knew that she was on my side, that she believed in the project. Um, and then together, we worked it down to finally 118,000 words, which mm-hmm. is still a big book, um, particularly for a, a small independent press. But uh, the um, the publisher, uh, Salem West, was very great in that she just said, yes, I agree with, with, with that you can't make any more cuts. So we went with it. Well, the, the story to me is 
uh, perfect. So um, your editor did you a great service in uh, cutting what she did, but not going any further. Well, it was an interesting experience, and and your writers uh, out there in the audience will will know this. Um, Faye would say, what if we cut this scene? I said, oh, no, not that scene. That's so great. (laughs) And so I would say, what if we cut this scene? She said, oh, no, you can't cut that. That's my favorite. You know, and so we'd go back and forth, and we finally... Uh, removed one storyline completely, yeah. and that gave us most of the, the the cut that we needed. So there was a lot of negotiating. It sounds like yes, and 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 I think that's natural that you know two yeah. two different viewpoints are going to have two different you know favorite characters and yes. favorite uh, parts of a story. But it's really important to be able to trust your editor, and uh, I I had total faith in Faye. Um, I believed in her her skills, her abilities, but also that, like I said, she really cared about the book as much as I did. Mm -hmm. And winning that award, um, the Forward Indies Award in the LGBT category, um, what has that uh, meant to you as a writer, and how has that affected your, you know, your writing projects since Mm then? Once again, I think it's validation. Uh, It was validation when a publisher would say, yes, we want to... um, published this book. That was great. And then when the award came uh, over a year later, um, that was validation for both myself and Faye and Salem that, well, other people recognized it for what we saw in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you need to take a, a break uh, after that happened? I mean, did you find that there was a period where you... Um, needed to kind of recharge your battery to start uh, something new? No, because I'm always working on projects. So even once As If Death Summoned was finished and off to the publisher, um, I was already working on a couple more projects. And uh, that really helped with my patience, too. So I just wasn't sitting at home wondering. um, But I was using that energy to on, on, on new projects. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I'm curious about, because I, I've experienced this myself as a writer, is when you're writing, do you, do you ever find a story taking an unexpected turn, something that you did not foresee? All the time. Yeah. All the time. I just think it, I think it's, that's normal for writers. Yeah. Uh, I've, you know, I've heard so many people say it, and it's true for me. I started uh, my first my first novel, The Legacy of Emily Hargraves, was meant to be a short story. Uh, it was a parody on ghost stories. It was going to be sort of a light, humorous uh, short story with two gay uh, young men who inherit a, uh, a family mansion up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And it was going along fine. I loved it. Um, and then I had this rather horrific vision, I guess we might call it, where what I saw did not belong to the story, but it was so closely attached to the story, I couldn't free myself of it. And at that point, the short story, the lighthearted short story that was a parody, ballooned into a novel that has some very dark moments. Huh. And it was like it just was taken out of my control. Yeah. It's an interesting process, and I think it is. Uh, you, um, at least I am still kind of... Um, mystified by it and I don't question it too much um, Mm -hmm. but I do find myself just kind of stepping back and saying huh you know who's who's in charge here because it it doesn't feel like it's me (laughs) (laughs) very much I I, I've learned that there is um, 
and I, I, I base it in my subconscious. So I call it my sort of my creative self, self uh, subconscious. And we all have that mm-hmm. that level of of knowledge, wisdom, insight. That's not ego based. Um, and I've learned to trust that, like like mm-hmm. you're saying as well. Yeah. Um, so I know that I'm in partnership, sort of a creative partnership with an aspect of myself that I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I one thing that I have really enjoyed since um, since moving to the Lower Columbia uh, five years ago is participating in your monthly Word Fest uh, gathering in Longview. And, and hearing other local writers read their work and uh, talk about their, um, their experience as writers. And uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about WordFest and how it, how it began? And, sure. uh, and, and also tell our listeners when it happens and where it happens so that people can uh, have that on their radar. Yeah. Um, WordFest uh, occurs on the second Tuesday of each month. Uh, we meet at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in their fellowship hall from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, but WordFest started back in 2006, so mm-hmm. it's been going for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. And how it started, there was a wonderful um, uh, former commissioner of Cowles County, Joan Lemieux, and she would have these dinners of writers, painters, sculptors, poets, um, um, uh People who make pots, I forget that the yeah. term. <laughs> Potters. <laughs> Potters, I guess, yes. Um, and she would gather people together for dinner about uh, every quarter or so. And in time, we said, well, maybe we should get together and sort of share what we're, what we're writing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I helped organize that back in 2006. And we thought it would be just a really small group, but continued to grow and grow and grow until now we're, we have anywhere from 30 to 50 people attending each uh, Tuesday evening. Yeah. Well, it's really a delightful, um, it's a delightful gathering. And I've, ma- I've made some wonderful friends there. And uh, I've read some wonderful poetry and yes. and books as a result that I that I would not have known about otherwise. Yeah. So um, my my last question for you, and I can't believe how quickly we've uh, run through our time. But um, if you could uh, ask your favorite writer a question, first of all, who who is that writer? And and what would the question be? Yes. One's favorite writer. That's for me is like asking your favorite child, you know. Um, (laughs) So I'll say that one of my favorite writers is the great Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky and uh, his masterpiece, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, that there was supposed to be a sequel to it, and he died before he did it. And I love that book, it's sort of an examination of of the soul, the Russian soul, but it even more the human soul Mm -hmm. and i would like to ask dostoevsky what he is planning in the second book Hmm. have you ever considered possibly writing that that sequel for him i wouldn't dare i wouldn't (laughs) dare (laughs) it would make writing about the aids epidemic seem like child's play (laughs) well gosh this has gone by uh, much too quickly and uh alan it's always Wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for spending time with River Writers today. Again, for our listeners, you can order books by Alan Rose from your favorite independent bookseller or online. 
And more information can be found on Alan's website at www.alan-rose.com. And that's A-L-A-N, then a hyphen, and then R-O-S-E dot com. The Writers Guild is a 501c3 supporting and encouraging writers in Astoria and the Lower Columbia. More information about the Writers Guild can be found online at thewritersguild.org. Thanks, Dad, for our theme song. Until next time, keep the words flowing and your pencil sharp. I'm Dale Olson for River Riders. Mm-hmm.